now have a reading from God's Word. Romans 6, 19-23 I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawless, lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of God. Thanks be to the Lord. Thanks for being with us today and for joining us as we continue our study in Romans 6. Before we dive into our passage, um, let me ask you a question. Can you imagine what it would be like if you lost your short-term memory? Like every time you pulled into a gas station and, and filled up with gas, you didn't remember what direction you were going. You didn't remember what your destination was. You just kind of had to make your best guess about which highway to get on, what direction to go, and, and where, where you're heading, right? Can you imagine if every time you walked into the kitchen, you were like, huh, why, why am I here? And some of you are like, Steve, that's just called turning 40. Um, can be, can be, but here's the thing, spiritually, um, I think we all have a problem with our short-term memory. Uh, we forget who we are. We forget where we're going. We forget where true blessing can be found. And in this passage, Paul is acting as uh, our short-term memory. He's reminding us of who we are. He's reminding us of what direction we're going. He's reminding us of the consequences of getting off track. Because there are, uh, spiritually, continually, two paths in front of us. One leads to death and the other to life. Deceptively, the path to death looks like the path to life, and deceptively, the path to life often feels like it's going to require us to die, um, which is why we need to keep our eyes set on the resurrection. Uh, we need to keep our eyes set on the resurrection if we're going to keep our feet on the path to life and our lives in line with true blessing. So to remind you of where we're at in our passage, let me uh, uh, kind of go back. Paul is using the analogy of slavery, or what we would call bond slavery, to help us understand a profound spiritual truth, right? And it is important that we recognize that he's talking about being a bond slave, right? He's not, he's not talking about uh, American chattel slavery, where the, the owners um, of the slaves owned absolutely everything about their slaves um, and could treat them as cattle to breed them, to sell them, to to dehumanize them because their humanity was completely uh, ignored, right? Slavery in the ancient world was brutal, um, but it was not uh, the chattel slavery that, that we have uh, in our American history, right? And what we're talking about is this bond servanthood. And, and in bond servanthood, people would actually voluntarily become bond servants, right? Both literally and figuratively, they, they could um, uh, attach themselves to a house, 
right? Uh, the way you became a bondservant was by taking your earlobe and nailing it to the doorpost of the home, right? It was a figurative but very physical and symbolic way of saying, I attach myself to this house. I now give all of my productivity. I give all of my energy um, uh, to this, this house. And in return, this house is going to provide for my needs. In return, this house is going to, to provide my food and my, and, and, and housing for security and, and care for me and my, my family, right? Bond servitude was a way of saying, uh, I'm, I am voluntarily entering into the servitude of this home in, in return for the security and the protection and the provision that would come from that, right? Paul uses this analogy as limited as he is, as it is, and, and Paul even admits in in verse uh, nineteen that it is that it is limited, right? He's like, I got, I'm using an analogy here. It's a deep spiritual truth, but I'm I'm doing my best to to help you understand. If you understood, I wouldn't need the analogy, but but because you don't, uh, I'm I'm going to use this, right? And and as limited as this analogy is, he's using it to describe what it means to be human. And I think it's important that we recognize that, that Paul's not just talking about what it means to be a Christian, right? This is what we would call a glimpse into Christian anthropology, the, the, the essence of what it means to be human itself, right? In, in the biblical view, humans are essentially desiring beings. We are driven by the hungers of our desires, uh, we have a hunger, a deep-seated hunger for, for things like security and significance, for comfort and approval. And under it all, there's even a deeper need, a deeper hunger for love, because ultimately it is, it is in love that those other needs for security, significance, comfort, and approval are met, right? But we're driven by these these desires, and these desires drive us uh, ultimately to hope. Hope is the direction we travel in in the anticipation that our desire is going to be met. Right. In the same way, you you consume something when you're physically hungry, in in the hope that that is going to satisfy the craving, satisfy the desire, right? Your desire drives you through hope to a behavior, right? You're going to end up doing something as a result, but that whatever you're doing is simply the fruit. The root is the desire channeling through a specific hope that leads to a behavior. The behavior is just the end of the process. Now, there are two fundamentally different hopes, in life that we've been exploring in, in Romans 6. One is, is hope that, that we can find the fullness of life apart from the God who created life. Right? That we can be independent from God, that we can stand on our own two feet, that we can mark the boundaries of our own glory and, and define the nature of our own pleasures, that we can find rest in the things we want to find rest in, and we can, we can make ourselves worthy, we can make ourselves secure. Right? And we call this worldliness. Worldliness of the systems that we create to try to find in this world the things that only the creator of this world can give, right? We try to find our deepest needs met in the physical things around us, in the systems we create as humans, as opposed to the God who created us in his image, right? So the first hope, the hope of independence from God, drives us continually to work, to labor, to strive, to do, because it is in our striving, it is in our performing, it is in our doing that we hope to find 
our security, our significance, our comfort, and our approval, right? The second hope that we've been introduced to in Romans is the hope of the glory of God. We looked at that in Romans 5 too, right? The hope of the glory of God is, in essence, the hope that we can be what we are created to be, right? That we can actually be crowned with the honor of the creational intent. We were created in the image of God, and, and instead of being in competition with God, we can, in fact, be crowned with the honor of, of being made in the image of God, right? So instead of striving to be like God, we can be content be created, being created in the image of God. And, and as a result, we are crowned with this honor of, of bearing God's image, and we can exercise our power or our dominion as image bearers for the good of others and for uh, God's honor. Um, the drive, the drive of the hope of worldliness is to keep and to get, right? So, so worldliness, finding the fullness of life in the world, apart from the God who created the world, in competition with God, standing on our own two feet, right? The, the, the drive of worldliness is to keep and to get. That's the, that's the heart of it. I gotta keep what I have and get more. I have to keep what I have. When it comes to money, I gotta keep what I have and get more. When it comes to glory, I gotta keep what I have and get more. When it comes to, to power, I gotta keep what I have and get more. When it comes to affluence, I have to keep what I have and get more. When it comes to, to, to approval of, from people, I have to keep what I have and get more, right? And this is what drives the insanity around us. People that, that are on the treadmill of, of continual self-improvement, but never being improved enough that they come content with self, right? The, the drive on social media for more likes, more followers, more, the drive in, in, in the economy for more money, the, the drive for, for, for more approval, more experience, more vacation, more food, more. We have to keep what we have and get more. That is the insane drive at the heart of worldliness. The drive at the heart of our hope of glory is that we receive and give, right? Instead of keep and get, we receive and give. We receive from God what he gives. We receive love. We receive grace. We receive his provision. We receive his promises. We receive the outpouring of his goodness. We receive, we receive. And and the more we receive, the more freed we become to give because we can never outgive God. We can never give so much that we become insecure in God. We can never give so much approval to others that we become less significant in God. We can never give so much generosity toward others that, that God ceases to be generous with us, right? We, we keep and, and, and get or we receive and we give. These are the two fundamental engines at work in how we try to satisfy our desires. That means the hope of worldliness even though, even though it is all about keeping and getting, what's ironic about it is, is that it's marked by fear. Because I'm totally afraid you're going to take what I have. That somehow I'm going to be diminished. I'm totally afraid that I'm not going to be able to get more, that my, my investment isn't going to pay back, that, that my, my money is going to shrink, or my significance is going to shrink, or my beauty is going to shrink, or my physical prowess is going to shrink, or my platform is going to shrink. It is marked by fear. It is marked by greed. It is marked by lust. It is marked by anger. It is marked by pride. It is marked by shame. Those are the natural things that result from the hope of worldliness. The hope of the glory of God, on the other hand, 
where we are learning to receive and to give is going to be marked by contentment and peace and joy and gratitude and generosity because I can't outgive God. So we're, those, that's kind of what we've covered, right? And, 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 and so as a result, we have, in a sense, two masters, two houses that we can nail our earlobes to, right? We're, we're going to be continually presenting ourselves to whatever our hope is, right? The desires don't go away, so we're going to be continually presenting ourselves to our hopes as bond slaves, I'm going to give you my energy. Now you give me what I desire. I'm going to give you my, my productivity. Now give me what I desire. I'm going to give you my, my imagination. Now give me what I desire. We will be continually giving ourselves to our hope with the anticipation that what we hope in is going to keep its promise. Now before we became believers, we were slaves to sin. Before we became believers, because of our sin, we were cut off from God, who is ultimately the thing that we most deeply desire. And as a result, independence from God was our only option. And worldliness was the default mode of the human heart. It's simply how we operated. We looked to the world to give us what only God can give. We were slaves to worldliness. It's all we had. And if we're honest, it's all we wanted. The reality is, is humble dependence on God was more threatening than promising. The idea that somehow I couldn't be enough, somehow I would have to become helpless, that was a terrifying thought to us, right? We would much rather improve ourselves than become humbly and completely helpless and dependent on God, right? We were slaves to worldliness, but, and just to remind you in verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were once slaves to sin, you have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed, right? When you believe the gospel, you became obedient, right? To receive grace, you had to become helpless and dependent. It's the only way to receive the free gift of grace. You have to receive it as a gift. You can't earn it. You have to receive it, right? Grace can only be received as a gift. So you became obedient, to God's plan for blessing. Instead of showing up and demanding that he blessed your plan for your self-improvement. You repented of your self-salvation and your self-improvement projects and instead rested in God's salvation project through the death and resurrection of Christ. Right? And then he goes on in verses 18 uh, through 20. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now I'm speaking in human terms, I'm using this human analogy because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, right? He's reminding us, don't think about life as a choice between slavery and freedom. That's a deceptive choice. Uh, because you have no choice but to be a slave. You have no choice but to try to channel your desires through some hope, and you will become the bondservant of whatever you put your hope in. You don't have a choice about that. You do have a choice as a follower of Christ where you place that hope, right? You're, you're a slave of your hope, and when you choose your master, you're ultimately free in regard to the one that you didn't choose, Right? Jesus said this, right? Jesus said you can't serve two masters. 
right? You can't. You'll be the bondservant of one and despise the other, or you will choose the other and despise the one. You, 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 you were a slave of sin. And as a result, he says, you lived in death, but now you've become obedient. Walk out that obedience, follower of Christ. You believed the gospel. Now he's pleading with you to walk out your faith in the Christ of the gospel. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life for life. You remember how the chapter started? Chapter 6. Chapter 6 started with a provocative question because Paul made a, a pretty provocative assertion. What he said was, God gave the Old Testament law, you know, the Ten Commandments and and all those other laws, that God gave the law not so that we could fix ourselves, not so we could improve ourselves, not so that we could become more moral. He gave that law specifically so that we could not only see that we were sinners, but actually to increase the sin. Like, God gave the law to make the problem worse, because in making the problem worse, it would drive us to grace, And then Paul leads to uh, an objection that he puts in the form of a question. He says, should we, should we then continue in sin that grace may abound? If, 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 if God gave the law to increase sin and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, should we just continue in sin that grace may abound? And, And Paul's answer is, God forbid. Now it's important for us to recognize that at this point, Paul's not saying, how dare you? How dare you ask this question? How dare you consider going back to sin? How dare you consider sinning to increase grace? How dare you? What he's, not, he's not saying, how dare you? He's saying, why would you? Why would you go back to, to sin that only results in death when you now can go to God and the result life? Why would you go back to the insane asylum where people just pretend that they can actually get the fullness of life from all these things that are emptying them of life? Why would you go back to the insane asylum where people think their jobs can give them ultimate security and significance? Why would you go back to the insane asylum where people think that the more people who like them, somehow that means they're more worthy of love? Why would you go back to the insane asylum where where people think that, that, that having more money somehow actually makes them more important or more secure in this life when when obviously it doesn't, right? Don't go back. Why would you? Why would you go back? Why would you return? Now Paul at the end of the chapter is bringing it back around by reminding us that we know it's an insane asylum. (laughs) That from our own experience in life, we know what we left behind, right? Verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Y'all think about it. Let's just be honest with ourselves for a moment. Think about it. Think about your worldly choices. And by worldly, remember, I'm not talking about the, the common misperception, like, oh, the, the choice to go to the strip club or the choice. It includes that. I'm talking about your choices that, that where you were pursuing the fullness of life apart from humble dependence on God where you were trying to pursue security without humbly and helplessly turning to God for security. So turning to your job or turning to somebody's approval or turning to your 401k. I'm talking about um, your need to improve yourself or fix yourself through, I don't know, 
becoming more self-disciplined in your diet or your exercise or, or, or becoming more religious in your behavior or, or more, think about it. He's, that's what he's saying. He's saying thinking about it. Think about your worldly choices. All the time that you sacrificed to get that corner office at work. All the time that you, you sacrificed to get that car that you thought people would really admire you in. All the, 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 think about it, he says. How, I think about this world. What if they gained you? Did, did they pay off? That's what he's saying. Did they pay off? Every choice you've made in independence from God, every choice you've made in pride, every choice you've made in self-sufficiency, every choice you've made in self-protection, every choice you've made for self-provision. How'd those end? How, how have those paid off in your life. And for some of you this morning, you're like, man, not real well. <laughs> like, you know. You know that they didn't it result in, in greater security. They resulted in greater anxiety. They didn't result in greater uh, significance. They resulted in greater shame. For some of you, you know because you've seen the wreckage of your own life. You've seen the wreckage of your own choices. You've seen the wreckage of your own heart. You've seen the, the emptiness and the vanity of trying to pursue in your own energy what you cannot accomplish. And you're there this morning and, 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 and you know it's not working. You're feeling helpless. You're feeling exposed. And some of you honestly are really stinging in your shame this morning and feeling like a failure. I've got really, really good news for you. But first, I need to talk to the rest of us. Because some of you, if you're honest, you're sitting in this morning and you're thinking, you know what, Steve? It really hasn't gone that bad for me. It really hasn't. Like, I've worked really hard and I got good grades. I got, I got a scholarship. I'm, I'm doing actually pretty well. I work really hard at work. I got a promotion. I feel so good. Because I'm not like those other suckers. I'm not, I'm not like those guys, those losers down there, those ones who, no. Some of you right now are like, no, Steve, actually, I've gotten my life together really, really good. I'm, I'm more religious than I used to be, and, and, and my life is better. I'm making better life choices. And, and Steve, isn't that a good thing? Because I'm really taking care of myself, and I'm really fixing myself. Okay. You know, some of you have fought really hard to keep what you have and get more. And right now you're feeling pretty good about the process. But let me ask you a deeper question then. Has what you've been pursuing kept its promise to you? Has it actually met the deeper needs of your heart? You say you're more secure. Are you free from anxiety? Like, holy cow, good for you. You mean you're completely free from anxiety? Well, no, Steve. I need a little bit more to get there. Okay, how much more? How much more do you need to be completely free from anxiety, completely content in life, completely secure in yourself and in your environment? How much more do you need? Oh, you don't know. You know why? Because you'll never know. Because you'll never have enough. In fact, the more you have, the more anxious you'll become. You just don't know it yet. You say you're more significant, that's great. Are you free from insecurity and shame? 
You have absolutely no fear of exposure. You have no need to surround yourself with people who, who sing your praises and highlight your strength and to alienate people who make you feel weak and threatened. You say you're more comfortable in your sinful choices. Yeah. Are you completely free from anger and resentment? Like you're, you, this comfort has so refreshed your soul that you're completely free from anger and resentment. You say you're more worthy of love, that you feel better now that whatever you fixed is, is working and people are giving you more attention. Does that mean that you are free to love others even when they despise you? Like you're so free in your self-worth that you're completely generous and, and loving toward those who don't see your self-worth. Y'all, listen. The reason I'm digging into this is this. At the end of the day, um, worldly pursuits, worldly pursuits, independent pursuits away from God, trying to stand in our own strength, achieving our own accomplishments, uh, to do these things, worldly pursuits always have a short-term benefit with a long-term cost. Worldly pursuits always end in death. Now remember, death here, the essence of death is separation. Spiritual death is, is the soul separation from God. Physical death is, is uh, the soul separation from the body. Emotional death is, is when we experience um, separation from those that we love or love us. Uh, personal death, when we are feeling this disjointed separation from ourselves and our inability to feel comfortable in our own skin, right? Death and all of its ugly cousins, right? Separation and all of its worldliness, always ends in death. There's only one destination, right? And here's the thing with the world to, to, to worldliness, the, the road to worldliness. It always starts downhill. It always feels good when it first starts out. I love living in Edwardsville. Um, I love our bike trails. I have made extensive use of our bike trails ever since we've lived here. Uh, in the beginning, mainly in riding my bike and walking, um, never in running, more recently in running. But, but here's the thing with, with, um, with Edwardsville and especially where I live. Um, the bike paths are all a blessing, but I, it's the weirdest thing. They're all downhill from where I live. Whatever direction I go, it goes downhill. So you end up going farther than you plan. Like when I first moved to Edwardsville, I'd jump on my junky old bike. I didn't even realize how junky it was. And, and I would just be cruising along and be enjoying the day. And I think this is the greatest thing in the world. And eventually I get to a point where I'm like, okay, it's time to turn around and go home. And it's like, oh, man, that's a lot harder. Like, how did I go this far? And why is it so much more painful to go back? See, that's the thing, man. You go farther than you plan to go, and it's always harder to get back than you ever imagined it would be. That's the path to worldliness. It's a short-term payoff with a long-term struggle. That's the deceptiveness of our independence from God, the deceptiveness of our sin. We mistake short-term momentum for long-term success. We mistake the short-term positive feelings that we get from pride or pleasure or power as genuine life. 
How many times do we need to go down that path before we remember that's the way the path works? How many times? Like, like how many times do we have to go down the path before we start recognizing the nature of the path itself, right? Before we remember that, that it has a short-term payoff and a long-term struggle. How many times do we have to forget before we remember how easy it is to forget? Because we're really good at it, y'all. That's the insanity of our sin. That's the insanity of, of thinking we can find the fullness of God apart from the God who gives it. Every once in a while, someone says something in such a memorable manner that um, I just quoted a ton. And I quote Chris, Chris Wright. Chris Wright's a, uh, uh, a Christian leader out in Arizona. And, and uh, I want to make sure I give him credit. I've quoted this a lot. But he's the, he's the guy who said, false gods never fail to fail. The trouble is that we never fail to forget it. That's what I'm describing. False gods never fail to fail. Worldliness never fails to fail. And we never fail to forget it. That's the insanity of our worldliness. So Paul is saying, y'all, what fruit did you get from those things of which you are now ashamed? Like, think about your own life, the worldly choices that you've made. Every single time you've tried to be independent from God, how did that end? Did it increase the things you were desiring, or did it increase the things that you hate? What's funny is he doesn't even need to know what it is. He doesn't even need to know what choice it was or what context it was made in because a trip down that road always lands in the same destination. But he says, you aren't on that road anymore. You're not a slave to that master anymore. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. You've been set free from the empty hopes of worldliness, from the insanity of looking to the world to give you what only the creator of the world can give you. You've been set free. You have a new hope. And because that, because you have a new master, right? You're part of a new household. You're, you're, you're a bond slave of God. And that leads to a very different kind of fruit. He says it leads to sanctification. Sanctification is the Bible's word for that process by which God is changing us so that we become in practical experience more of who we are positionally in Christ, right? God has declared us as followers of Christ to be as righteous as Christ is. I'm covered in the very righteousness of Christ. My sin was crucified with Christ and it was left on the cross. And when he rose from the dead, his act of obedience covered me. His righteousness covered me. Positionally, I'm in Christ. I am, I am right before God because he succeeded where I failed, right? I don't stand in my record. I, I stand in his. Sanctification is the process by which God is changing me practically into what I've already been declared to be positionally. Sanctification is the process by which he is changing me so that I become more like Christ. To put it in, in Romans 5 and 6 language, sanctification is the process by which God is freeing me 
to be truly human, as humans were created to be. Walking in complete, humble, and helpless dependence on God, receiving from God all the goodness that he pours out, and then generous in what we've received in our relationship with ourselves and with others. Sanctification is that process by which God is setting us free from our slavery to sin and to pride and to shame and to performing and to pretending. Sanctification is that beautiful process where God is freeing us into the blessings we've received in Christ. Because while we've received every blessing in Christ, we are not yet experiencing every blessing we've received in Christ. Sanctification is the process by which God is freeing us into those beautiful blessings. And this is where it gets tricky. This is where it gets tricky because worldliness promises immediate gratification and blessing without suffering. Worldliness always promises that the problem is out there. And if you can just keep and get enough, you can avoid that problem out there. You can silence that problem out there. You can eliminate that problem out there and then you'll be fine. God doesn't deceive us with empty promises of changing anything out there. Although he will one day, but that's not the heart of blessing. The heart of God's blessing isn't that he's going to change what's out there. The heart of God's blessing is that he's going to change what's in here. Sanctification requires us to recognize that the primary thing keeping us from walking in the fullness of life isn't something out there. It's my rebellion in here. It's my pride, it's my shame, it's my need to perform. It is my sinful addiction to trying to be independent from God and in competition with God. God is going to give us sanctification. And that's where it gets tricky because worldliness promises life without change. And we like that promise, don't we? Man, we like the promise that a problem can be solved, that a blessing can be experienced without my having to change. Man, I don't want to go through the painful process of changing, right? I love my sin, and and I don't want to die to it. It, I, I don't know who I am in many cases without my pride, without my performance, without my pretending. And you're telling me you're going to free me from that? That feels like death. I have to die to who I was. I have to die to the things that I thought made me secure. I have to die to the things that I thought made me important. I have to die to my resume, this thing that I've spent my my entire life trying to build so that somehow I can be important or secure. That doesn't sound like immediate blessing to me. That sounds like immediate suffering. But here's the thing. Worldliness promises immediate gratification and blessing without suffering, but it always betrays its promises obedience promises fullness of life through the difficult and often painful process of personal change. And it always keeps its promise. Y'all, we need to recognize that this is not an easy thing. Because sin is so deceptive and it always whispers the words we most want to hear. That's the thing, man. It it, it knows our weakness and it whispers the words that we want to hear. 
God comes and speaks truth, often the truth we don't want to hear, the truth that is hard, the truth that we do in fact need to change to experience blessing, that we do in fact need to be transformed. And that transformation is going to require part of us to die so that we can walk into the resurrection that's on the other side of that death. Worldliness comes in and says, man, you don't need to change. You don't need to sacrifice. You don't need to grow because you're not the problem. The problem is out there. So, so walk this path. Do this thing. Perform in these ways, right? Listen, it's your pride that makes you fragile. It's your shame that makes you foolish. It's your fear of change that leads you to slavery, to sin. And it drives you further and further from the very thing you most deeply want Because the end of worldliness is always death. It feels like downhill when you choose it, but it's a deceptive momentum. Listen, we follow Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us that the path to life feels like the path to the cross. It shouldn't surprise us as followers of Jesus that resurrection is on the other side of death, that there are parts of us that need to die. God promises us freedom by honestly leading us into the change that we desperately need to be free. When you get this, you, under, you start to understand how Paul could say in, in Romans 5.3 that, that we rejoice in our suffering. Right? A statement that makes absolutely no sense outside of this context because suffering isn't something we rejoice in, it's something we avoid. We don't like discomfort, we don't like pain, we don't like to hurt. But there is a good kind of pain. It's the kind of pain that when the thing that is killing us is being put to death. And yeah, it hurts. And it even feels like we're dying at times because we've become so identified with this thing that has enslaved us that for it to die means it feels like we're going to die with it. But really, it's our pride that's dying. It's our deceptive self-confidence. It is our addiction to keeping ourselves secure instead of becoming helpless before God. It's not that we like pain, but we trust that God is at work in the pain to change us and to set us free. So Paul concludes this section in verse 23 by stating the simple principle that he's been driving home this whole chapter, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Worldliness is about performing and earning. Worldliness is about exercising our own power and trying to carve out our own space in this world where we can be equal to God. And the wages of that earning is always death. Separation from ourselves, separation from God, separation from others, and and even ultimately physical death. And the Bible talks about even ultimately the second death, where we are completely and eternally cut off from the fullness and blessing of God because we have rejected Christ as the way back to life. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God the free gift of God. (laughs) And that is such a beautiful and humbling phrase. We love free things. What we don't love about the free gift of God is that it requires us to be completely helpless to receive it. 
The only way to receive a free gift is to stop trying to earn it, to stop trying to merit it, to stop trying to perform for it, but to become helpless in our true helplessness and to simply receive what we cannot earn. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life, y'all, isn't just a length of time. It's a quality of life. See, the life that we receive in Christ doesn't just last forever. It lasts forever because it is so vitally real. It is, it is life as life is intended to be. It is the fullness of life, the, the glorious hum in which all the different pieces of life come together in harmony to sing a song of security and significance, to sing a song of, of worthiness, to sing a, a song of joy and rest that renews our souls. Eternal life is what you crave right now. Like we're not just talking about eternal life like the life that lasts forever. It's the, the, the nature of eternal life being set loose in you now through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. See, that's the beauty of sanctification. On the other side of it is always re- resurrection. Whatever God puts to death in your life is only being put to death so that you can be freed into a greater experience of the resurrection life, the eternal life, the the fullness and the vibrancy of what you most deeply crave. So as Paul comes to the end of, of Romans 6, I will come once again to that central command. Present yourselves. Present yourselves to God as those who have been raised from the dead. And He will sanctify you. He will set you free into the power and the beauty and the dignity and the freedom that is yours in Christ. Let me close this word of prayer. We're going to share communion. And uh, and then uh, we will sing. But first, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that... Um, Lord, even though we are so easily deceived, even though we are not simply taken captive by external deceptions, Lord, we, if we're honest, we have to admit that we love the deceptions that captivate our hearts, that we love the seductive promise of pride and self-provision. We love the seductive promise that we can be like God without having to become humbly dependent on you. How insane. How insane that we would try to compete with you. How insane that we would walk away from the place of dignity and honor as those created in your image, designed to walk in humble, joyful dependence on you. And in walking in humble, joyful dependence to receive from you everything that we could never earn or achieve on our own. Spirit, will you awaken us to the beauty of this invitation this morning? Will you, Lord, if there are those who haven't yet believed in Christ, Spirit, would you awaken the eyes of their hearts that they might come to their senses, that they might hear and receive this incredible invitation that they too can pass from death to life, that Christ can be their Savior, their hero, the one who died their death and will give him or her his resurrection. And for those of us, Lord, that are struggling as followers, 
with anxiety or fear, with anger, resentment, with lust or greed. Will you help us, Lord, to know what it means even in the midst of the struggle to present ourselves to you as those who have been made alive by the work of Christ. That we might receive grace and receiving grace might grow in grace and growing in grace, we might grow in freedom. Lord, do this work. You're the only one who can. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.